Grace and peace to you from God and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. On Friday night, November the 8th, 1996, a great storm came through Atlanta, Georgia. Heavy, heavy rains, high winds, blowing rain parallel to the ground. And it did that, it rained for many, many hours. The next morning when my parents got up, they found in their bedroom, in their dining room, puddles of water coming from beneath the baseboards. Now they knew they had a problem with the roof, but they didn't, hadn't had a problem up until that point. My father just months earlier had had his right leg amputated and also had had a colostomy three days after the amputation. And although he wasn't infirmed, we were still trying to recover. He was still trying to recover from the shock of that major change in his life. About an hour later, there came a knock on the door, and there on the other side of the screen door stood a burly, big man who introduced himself as Bert the Roofer. I'd been driving around the neighborhood, he said, knocking on doors, seeing if anybody had any water problems last night. Well, at first, it appeared that an angel of the Lord had appeared at my parents' house. They led him into the dining room, showed him the water. He got out his ladder, went up on the roof, came back a little later and said, I have found the problem. Yes, your roof is old. It is covered with moss. It needs to be replaced. But it would seem that some creatures have eaten their way in through the eaves and the wind was just right to blow water into the hole. Not a surprise. Their next-door neighbors had been feeding raccoons cracked corn in their backyard. And we had heard the little creatures scurrying around in the attic from time to time in the past. It's hard to believe, but in just a few minutes, he had my then 73-year-old mother up on top of this slimy, moss-covered roof, showing her the problem. And then shortly thereafter, my father had signed a handwritten contract and given Bert the roofer a $5,000 advance check. Within just a few minutes, a van load of workers arrived at the house with ladders and hammers and crowbars. The gutters were flying off of the house. The shingles were flying through the air to the ground in the yard. And once they had stripped the roof down to the bare decking, and this house was built at a time when, we, when plywood was not used, but instead slats, and so there was space between each slat, once they were down to the bare deck, everybody disappeared. Sunday came, no body there, open roof to the sky. Late Sunday afternoon, we called Bert the roofer, and he said, I'll be there at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. I have to buy some supplies. I arrived at 9.30 to find Bert the roofer with a $2,000 check in his hand going out the back door for supplies. To make a very long story short, I stopped him, 
said, you are going to put some plastic on this roof soon, aren't you, because it's supposed to rain tomorrow. He said, you don't know what you're talking about. You're not going to tell me how to do my business. If I bought tarps large enough for this house, it would be very expensive. I said, you are going to put some tarps on this house before the day is over, aren't you? And make an even longer story short, we spent Thanksgiving dinner under Burt Blue Tarp, Christmas dinner under Burt Blue Tarp, New Year's Day under Burt Blue Tarp, three months. And then we fired him. He would come and work for an hour and disappear. He would not come for weeks or a week and then disappear. He'd bring two or three people, they'd work a half a day and disappear. Still, the blue tarp is the only protection between the house and the elements. As he was leaving the day that we fired him, I was there. I, Dad, he threatened, actually, Dad in some ways, because Dad was in a wheelchair, and he'd stand over him and yell. He shoved me out of the way, and I told him never to return to the house. We were taking a restraining order out on him. And as he got into his truck, he cursed up one side and down the other, a blue streak. And I tell you, I laid carpet in the summers in college, and I know how to cuss. As he peeled out of the driveway up Friar Tuck Road, he was still cussing at me. And I stood at the top of the driveway, and I said, God, you add the other word, him. And I looked up and I said, and I mean it, God, I'd never done that before. I never want to do it again. But I meant it. I had condemned him to the place of eternal theological fire if I could help it. Later we saw a report by Virginia Gunn on her consumers uh, and on Fox 5. Bert was at it again, and even the governor's office for elder fraud got into the, into the story. Today, Peter comes to Jesus, and in the NRSV, I mean the RSV translation of the Bible, Peter asks Jesus, how many times must I forgive my brother? I have an image of Peter and Andrew two brothers following Christ in close company and the community of those who are with Jesus day in and day out, having one of those wonderful brotherly spats that I have with my brothers, having some kind of struggle together. And Peter has had all he can take, perhaps since Jesus has named Peter Petra and the rock that he's going to found the church on, perhaps Philip is telling Peter that he has rocks in his head. Who knows? But Peter comes to Jesus and says, how many times do I have to forgive? Seven times? And Peter, I can just see Peter doing the math. The rabbis taught that, from a reference in the prophet Amos, that you had to forgive anybody three times. And the fourth time you could do anything that you wanted, but at least three times. So Peter doubles that and he adds one for good measure. And he says, seven times? And Jesus goes, says back to him, no, 77, or in some translations, 70 times 7. Do the math. If it's 70 times 7, it's endless. It's constant forgiveness. And Jesus is telling us that we are to live a life of forgiveness. A life of forgiveness. And then he tells the story of the king and the two slaves, or servants, or stewards, depending on the translation you're reading. 
The, slave, the king is clearly God, and the first servant or slave is clearly us or a Christian. We come and we say to, we, God comes to us and says, pay us, pay me the debt you owe us. And we can't. And we throw ourselves upon God's mercy. And we ask for God's forgiveness. And it is granted. But then see what the slave does. He goes and leaves immediately. And he grabs another slave by the throat. And he says, pay me what you owe me. Now, if you do the math of the, of the, of the debt, the first debt is over a million dollars in our terms. Maybe two million dollars. And the debt that he's demanding from his fellow slave is only $20, about a month's wages. And the second slave does the same thing the first did. He throws himself upon his brother's mercy and he says, be patient with me and I will pay you. But no, he throws him into prison until his debt is paid. It's amazing how fast we can forget what we have been given. Now, in, in Buford, there are four churches within a city block of each other on Brazelton Highway. One of them happens to be St. Mary and St. Martha's Episcopal Church, where I spent a significant amount of my life. It was fascinating on Sundays when all of us got out of church at about the same time to see, as people left the parking lots, how soon they forgot what they had learned just a moment before. Episcopalians were very courteous, of course, but we all need forgiveness. It's, it's what we need. There's not a one of us in this room who hasn't done something in the last week that needs to be forgiven or had something done to them for whom somebody needs to ask us to forgive them. So we don't go out and grab somebody else's throat and demand what we've already been forgiven. And then Jesus warns us that if we act like the first slave, we will be thrown into prison, the place of, as I said earlier, I love the phrase, theological eternal flame. Now back to Bert. Well, it was a few months later where on the news I saw that he had been thrown into prison. <laughs> but I also came to realize that having condemned him placed me under the same condemnation. That my words reflect back onto me and it was a blot upon my spiritual life and my soul. So I sought out a trusted priest did reconciliation of the penitent is found in the prayer book. She was a good friend. I told her part of the reason I was doing it is because I didn't want to go to where Bert was going. And at the end, she absolved me. I heard God's words of forgiveness. And then she chuckled and said, that's one of the most self-centered confessions I've ever heard. But it worked. Immediately the burden was removed from me. And I could from a distance experienced the same thing for Bert the roofer. And in the end, and in the end, my salvation, at least for that moment, was placed back into my hands. 
Who is it that you need to forgive today? Or who needs to forgive you? Is it a former spouse? I've been there. Is it a boss? Or is it a child or an, a parent? Is it that you need to forgive yourself? God wants us to be saved. And God doesn't go about that by grabbing us by the throat and saying, pay me what you owe me. God reached out God's hands on the hardwood of the cross in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, that we all can come within the reach of his saving and forgiving embrace. Think about those folks in your life whom you need to forgive. Ponder that question, for we are called to live a life of forgiveness. We are called to be forgivers, and not just 77 times, but in every moment in which we draw breath. Forgive as you have been forgiven. In these moments of quiet, please reflect on who you need to forgive, be it yourself or someone else. Amen.